I mean, I tell you what, it really loaded up our team. Uh, I mean, when we get Steve Finley, our center fielder, uh, Cammy, obviously. I mean, I was a little disappointed because of I, that was my opportunity, as I said earlier, to show myself and play and and get a lot of playing time at third base. And and then they bring over Caminetti, and I was disappointed. But then I just dealt with it and said, okay, I'll just be the best backup utility player that I can be. But then once I met Ken, it's like I wasn't I wasn't upset at all. The guy's amazing. Uh, he he was awesome, and you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that didn't didn't like it. That was San Diego Padres third baseman Scott Livingstone, thinking back on the 1994 mega trade, which brought Ken Caminiti from Houston to San Diego. We'll talk about that trade more in a few weeks, but to understand how that 12-player mega deal got done, we have to go back over a decade to the summer of 1984, when Ken Caminiti was a fresh-faced third-round draft pick of the Houston Astros out of San Jose State. The 1984 Summer Olympic Games held in Los Angeles, California are considered to be the most financially successful modern Olympics. After Montreal in 1976 and Moscow in 1980 both infamously hemorrhaged money, Los Angeles and New York City were the only two cities in the world that expressed a genuine interest in hosting the 84 Summer Games. Since only one city from a country is allowed to submit a bid, the U.S. Olympic Committee selected the City of Angels, and they pulled off the feat with stunning efficiency. With low construction costs and a reliance of private funding, the Games reeled in a profit of over $250 million. The proceeds from the Games were used to establish the LA84 Foundation to promote youth sports in Southern California, educate coaches, and maintain a sports library. The Games elevated the fame of Peter Victor Uberoff, who served for five years as the president of the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee. Uberoff was 46 when the Games took place and already had a successful career in the travel business. Born outside of Chicago in Evanston, Illinois, Uberoff was a three-sport star at Fremont High School in Sunnyvale, California, eight miles from San Jose. Like Ken Caminiti, Uberoff was a student athlete at San Jose State, where he attended on a water polo scholarship. He tried out for the 1956 U.S. Olympic water polo team, but did not make the squad. After graduating, he went to work as a vice president for Trans International Airlines, and four years later, founded his own travel company, First Travel Corporation. By the time Ubroth sold the company in 1980 to devote his time to organizing the Olympic Games, First Travel had become the second largest travel agency in America. On March 3, 1984, Around five months before the Olympics opening ceremonies, Major League Baseball owners selected Uberoff to serve as the sixth commissioner of baseball. He replaced outgoing commissioner Bowie Kuhn on October 1st. Two days later, the Major League Umpires Association went on strike, just as the National League Championship Series was set to get underway. Two high school teachers, a jet plane salesman, and a food salesman all of whom were part-time Big Ten Conference umpires, were brought in to work the first game between the Chicago Cubs and the San Diego Padres. The umpires were striking for an increase in pay for playoff games. Ubroth successfully arbitrated the disagreement, and after four games, the umpires were back to work. It was an appropriate beginning to a turbulent five-year tenure as commissioner for Ubroth. There were highlights of his time in charge of the national pastime for sure, 
but the Uberoth era is most notable for its controversy, labor strife, and the laying of a foundation which altered the game forever. But in 1984, things were hopeful, and Uberoth was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. His tenure as commissioner would have major consequences on the 21-year-old Ken Caminiti's future. But in the present, the Astros draftee would not be spending his summer on a minor league field in Asheville, North Carolina. Instead, he would spend it in red, white, and blue, representing the United States of America on the 1984 Olympic baseball team. This is Secondary League, the rise and fall of Ken Caminiti, a 10-part series on the life and career of one of the most important baseball players of the 80s and 90s. If you like this show, please click subscribe and leave a rating or review. And now, Chapter 2, Laying the Foundation. Rod Dado is one of the greatest amateur baseball coaches of all time. He won a record 11 College World Series national championships in 45 seasons as the head coach of the University of Southern California. He was also the skipper of the 1984 United States Olympic baseball team. In 1992, sports writer Ross Newhan of the Los Angeles Times dubbed the 84 Olympic baseball team the original dream team, perhaps the greatest amateur team ever. That was no exaggeration. Of the 20 players who made the final roster, 18 of them were first round draft picks in either 84 or 85, and 17 ultimately reached the major leagues. After being drafted in the third round of the 84 draft by the Houston Astros, Ken Caminiti was vying to be one of those 20. Ken was shocked by his invitation to join the team since he never even tried out. In the six weeks leading up to the opening ceremonies, Caminiti traveled the nation with the Olympic team, playing exhibition games against minor league teams and amateur all-star squads. It was partly a barnstorming tour and partly an audition. Dato had 30 players on the roster and needed to cut down to 20 by the opening ceremonies. The team was constantly on the road. Their 33-game road trip began on June 16th at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, Missouri, just one week after Caminiti signed his contract with the Astros. They played games in 19 states and in 12 different big league ballparks. On July 14th, they met the Japanese national team at the Astrodome in Houston, where Ken had the chance to take the field for the first time in his future home. The tour finished at Angel Stadium in Anaheim on July 23rd, with the team registering a gaudy 30-3 record throughout the stretch. At that point, Dato announced his final five cuts. They were pitchers Greg Swindell, Norm Charlton, and Drew Hall, outfielder Ben Abner, and Ken Caminiti. The team went on to take home the silver medal after falling to Japan 6-3 in the gold medal game at Dodger Stadium. While baseball was only a demonstration sport in that year's summer games, the team played to packed houses and an energized American crowd. It was a team of super potential. Dato said to the LA Times as part of Newhan's 1992 article. People rightly feel that it may have been the greatest assembly of amateur talent ever. With a roster featuring Will Clark, future Hall of Famer Barry Larkin, and Mark McGuire, there was no doubt that this team was going to have a big impact on baseball in the near future.
Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, distinguished guests, my name is Jose Canseco, and for 17 years I played professional baseball. That's Oakland Athletics slugger Jose Canseco testifying to the House Government Reform Committee during a 2005 hearing on steroids in baseball. It wasn't a problem. There wasn't anyone that said, you know, don't do it, or you shouldn't do it, or if you get caught, this is going to happen to you. It was acceptable in the 80s and mid to late 90s as a cup of coffee. Jose Canseco was born in Havana, Cuba in 1964. His father, Jose Sr., worked for the Esso Oil and Gasoline Corporation and was a part-time English teacher before Fidel Castro rose to power in 1959. By 1965, Jose Sr. had lost his job and his home and was allowed to leave Cuba with his wife Barbara and his one-year-old twin sons, Jose and Ozzy. As Jose grew up, he played baseball in high school but he didn't make the varsity team until his senior year in 1982. That year, he was named team MVP. He was drafted in the 15th round of the 1982 MLB draft by the Oakland Athletics. By 1984, he had worked his way up to Class A Modesto in the California League, when the 19-year-old got a phone call that would change the course of his life. Years later, in an interview with Oprah Winfrey, Jose Canseco said that he received a phone call from his sister saying that his mother was gravely ill and to come home to Miami right away. When he got home, he saw his mother in the hospital where she was already brain dead and on life support. She never saw him play professional baseball, but Canseco promised right there that he would be the best player in the world for her no matter what it took. Barbara soon after passed away of a brain hemorrhage. When he returned to Modesto, he got in touch with a teammate and asked him what he needed to take to get bigger, faster, and stronger. And that was when Jose Canseco claims he began using steroids. Within a year, he was in the major leagues, and he was the American League Rookie of the Year in 1986 and the American League MVP in 1988, when he accomplished the unprecedented feat of 40 home runs and 40 stolen bases in the same season. Jose represented a Johnny Appleseed of steroids in Major League Baseball. He introduced them to Oakland teammate Mark McGuire and claims to have helped several other high-profile sluggers begin steroid regimens in the 80s and 90s. Performance-enhancing drugs, including steroids, were a part of baseball for many decades before Canseco came along, but his success and advocacy within the game was an important catalyst to spurring the steroid era, which was reaching dizzying heights in the late 1990s. Before baseball got juiced to the gills, Ken Caminiti began his minor league career in 1985 as a member of the Osceola Astros, a Class A team in the Florida State League. The Houston Astros had just moved their spring training facility to the brand new Osceola County Stadium, and Osceola was added to the Florida State League as an expansion franchise. Manager Dave Kripe was optimistic heading into the season, pointing to strong pitching and infield defense including Caminiti at third base as the team's strengths. The Astros were a force in the FSL Central Division. From the season opener on April 12th through the end of the season, the team only spent one day out of first place. The team finished with a 77-58 and record, eight games ahead of second place Winter Haven. The Astros fell to the Fort Lauderdale Yankees 2-1 in the first round of the playoffs, who in turn were defeated in the FSL Championship by the Fort Myers Royals. Phil Plantier was a teammate of Caminiti's in the major leagues, 
and is now a minor league hitting coach in the Yankees organization. He describes Caminiti's playing style. In the middle of the order, the bat switch hitter with power from both sides of the plate. Tough on matchups. Um, so you can stick him anywhere in the order and he's going to make the guys around him better. So offensively, um, because he's a guy you can put anywhere in the order, um, the rest of the lineup gets better. The other team is going to have a more difficult time, especially later in the game in high leverage situations, to be able to match up against them. Uh, defensively, aggressive. Attack the baseball. Was extremely locked in mentally every pitch. One of the hardest things to do playing baseball is to be locked in every pitch, every day. <laughs> and he did that. Uh, and you could see it. Um, his level of preparation every day was high, never showed up and took a day off. Um, those are the hardest things to do, and that's what makes a player great. The first minor league season was a special one for Caminiti. He led the team in batting average, slugging percentage, OPS, doubles, triples, hits, and RBIs. He was second in the club in runs and third in on-base percentage and home runs, and fourth in stolen bases. He walked 51 times and struck out only 54. Fans recognized Ken as a good and promising ball player, but few could believe the player he would eventually become. At the midway point of the season, he was named a Florida State League All-Star, one of five Astros players who got that honor. In the first inning of the All-Star game, he had an RBI single as the East beat the West 5-2. As Caminiti's reputation as a tough-nosed ball player in the Astros minor league system grew, so did his reputation as a hard drinker. I was raised in the Houston organization, and I had a couple managers, I won't mention names, who knew who I was, Caminiti told ESPN the magazine in 1998. If he had a bad game and it stayed in the night before, people would bring him out with him the next night. Ken said it became his label that if he went out the night before and got drunk, he would get hits, and even noted that it worked, at least in the minor leagues. The 23-year stretch from 1972 to 1995 was the most tumultuous era in baseball labor relations history. Between player strikes and ownership lockouts, there were seven work stoppages, culminating with the disastrous 1994 strike. The shortest of those work stoppages occurred in August 1985 and lasted a whopping two days. Baseball's collective bargaining agreement expired at the end of 1984 and players were playing the 85 season without a new CBA as Commissioner Peter Uberoth and Acting Director of the MLB Players Association Donald Fear worked on a new agreement. A sticking point was a six-year television deal signed by MLB in 1983 worth over $1 billion, which didn't seem to jibe at the claim that baseball was losing money. Fortune magazine reported that the TV deal quadrupled baseball's revenue. Previous to that deal, the Players' Pension Fund received one-third of TV revenue, worth about $15.5 million per year. In the new CBA, the union wanted to maintain that one-third share, which would have meant over $50 million per year. Owners were countering by pushing for an average payroll plan, which would have served as a de facto salary cap and an arbitration cap. Neither side wanted to give in. On August 6, 1985, MLB players walked off the job. Uberoth, looking to bring a quick end to the strike, made concessions on behalf of the owners. 
they dropped the salary cap ideas and raised the minimum MLB salary from $40,000 to $60,000 per year. They also committed to contribute $33 million a year to the pension fund through 1988. The loan concession made by players was to increase the number of years of service time from two to three before a player became eligible for salary arbitration. The strike was ended after only two days, and the games missed were made up at the end of the season. Owing to its brevity, the 85 strike has largely been forgotten about in the context of baseball history, but its importance is massive. It sowed the seeds of greater labor management mistrust and fostered a tension which carried forward into the 1990s. And it laid the first cracks in the foundation of Peter Ubroth's tenure as commissioner, as many owners voiced their frustration with his handling of the situation. He's a no-good SOB, one NL owner told the Chicago Tribune. We could have gotten the whole thing, but Ubaroth forced the settlement for his personal benefit. All he cares about is making a big reputation for himself. An American League owner chimed in, we got the bad end on arbitration, no question about that. It could save us maybe five hundred dollars to $600,000, pennies compared to what we could have gained by the cap. Quickly overshadowing the strike was the biggest scandal the sport had seen since the Chicago White Sox conspired to throw the 1919 World Series. Just 12 days after the strike ended, Pittsburgh Pirates relief pitcher Rod Scurry became the first player directly named in the federal cocaine distribution trial of Curtis Strong. Strong was the clubhouse caterer for the Philadelphia Phillies and had been supplying players with cocaine. Throughout the summer of 1985, numerous major leaguers were called in to testify in front of a grand jury, which indicted seven men, including Strong, of distribution charges. Strong was the only one of the seven to go to trial, and his attorney, Adam Renfro Jr., decided to make Strong's trial more about putting baseball on trial. It was a public relations nightmare for the national pastime. The trial exposed a growing drug culture in baseball, with stars Dave Parker, Keith Hernandez, and Tim Raines all named. Raines admitted in court under oath that he would play games with a vial of cocaine in his back pocket and he slid headfirst into bases to avoid breaking the glass. Hernandez claimed that over 40% of baseball was using cocaine. Dale Berra, the son of Yankees legend Yogi, talked about how easy it was to get amphetamines, which were available in the clubhouse. Scurry admitted to leaving Pittsburgh's Three Rivers Stadium in the middle of a game to get cocaine, and it came out that the Pirates mascot, the Pirate Parrot, would serve as a delivery boy for players to score coke. Baseball, along with many other parts of society, has developed a bit of a cocaine culture as cocaine tries to attack the underbelly of this nation. Uberoff explaining baseball's drug policy during the fall of 85. It is a cloud that hangs over this game like it hangs over many other parts of society. It is a attacker to the integrity of the game and must be removed. It's, we're going to fight drugs and baseball for the health and well-being of the players and their families and the people close to them. We're going to tell very clearly the mothers and fathers across the two nations where we play now and where we'll play uh, maybe additional nations in the future. We're going to tell them that baseball is clean. Baseball has got all the visibility with drugs. will rid itself of drugs because we want to do our part after solving our own problems of helping the rest of society. So some sports adopt a charity. Our charity will adopt 
is to tell young people to say no to drugs. Peter Uberoff made many bold claims about wanting to clean the game up and make baseball have the toughest drug testing of any sport, and urged players to voluntarily submit to drug testing. Many players expressed that they wanted testing, but they rejected Ubroth's proposal, stating that any drug testing should be negotiated in conjunction with the players' union. When Ubroth proposed a comprehensive drug testing plan in early 1986, the MLBPA vowed to fight against it. It wasn't until 2012 that the union finally agreed to random in-season drug testing. Players were given immunity from charges in exchange for their testimony against Strong who was sentenced to 12 years in prison and ended up serving four. This was a fairly standard arrangement at that time, as the U.S. was beginning the war on drugs. Ubroth did not have to honor that deal, and in 1986, he handed down 11 suspensions. Drugs are over in baseball, Ubroth boldly proclaimed on April 7th. It is flat over. It's done because the players wanted it done. We're going to have a season that is completely drug-free, and we're going to be the first sport that can say that. Three days after that proclamation, Jose Canseco hit his first steroid-aided home run of the season for the Oakland A's, and he would club 32 more by season's end to claim AL Rookie of the Year. Rod Scurry, whose arrest in 1984 set in motion the whole chain of events, was out of baseball by the end of 1988, when the Seattle Mariners released him on December 21st. The very next day, Scurry was arrested for buying crack cocaine in Reno, Nevada. On October 29, 1992, one of Scurry's neighbors notified police that Rod was acting erratic. When cops arrived, they found Rod outside rambling about snakes that were inside his house that had been biting him. When authorities attempted to handcuff Scurry, he resisted and became agitated and violent. Then he stopped breathing. He was brought to the hospital where he was placed on life support for a week. On November 5th, less than five years after his baseball career ended, he died at the age of 36. His cause of death was a cocaine-induced heart attack. In a 2015 ESPN 30 for 30 short on the Pittsburgh drug trials, Kevin Connolly, a key figure in the scandal, said, It's funny because the steroid scandal was so parallel to the baseball scandal. You think they'd have learned something with the baseball scandal, and they learned nothing. None of the labor discord had a direct impact on Caminiti at the time. To this day, minor league players are not unionized and are not covered by any collective bargaining agreement. So when Major League Baseball went on strike, the minors continued on as planned. Ken made only $650 per month while playing for the Osceola Astros in 1985, the equivalent of about $1,500 in 2020. He remembered having to ask his parents for help with bills and paying the rents. The monthly salary for a player in the Florida State League in 2020 is around $1,160 per month, an inflation-adjusted pay cut of around 25%. Minor league players have their salaries paid for by the major league parent clubs and not by the minor league team that they play for. The pay was outrageous, but Ken worked hard, said Don Myers, who was the Osceola Astros general manager in 1985. Not only did Ken arrive early and stay late for extra batting and fielding practice, but he also volunteered to make team appearances in signing autographs and handing out free tickets. That hard work and dedication fueled results which earned Ken a promotion in 1986 to the AA Columbus Astros of the Southern League. 
This was part of a major shakeup in the Astros organization following 1985. General Manager Al Rosen left to take charge of the San Francisco Giants, and Dick Wagner was hired as his replacement. Along with new minor league director of operations Fred Nelson, one of Wagner's goals was to weed out the more experienced players in the minor leagues and make way for younger players like Caminiti, who was rated by Baseball America as the number five prospect in the Astros organization entering the season. He was among 16 Osceola players from 1985 who were promoted to a higher level of baseball out of spring training in 1986, an extraordinary number. The 1986 Columbus Astros got off to a dreadful start, and on June 10th, Dave Kripe, who was promoted up the system that year along with the players, was relieved of his managerial duties and was reassigned as a scout for the rest of the season. Gary Tuck took over the team. Tuck inherited a team with a 22-38 record and guided them to a 48-32 finish to make the playoffs. They defeated the Jacksonville Expos in the first round of the playoffs and polished off the Huntsville Stars to cap off an improbable run to the Southern League Championship. Caminiti took big strides with his offensive game in 1986, leading the team in hits and finishing second with a 300 batting average. He set career highs in doubles and RBIs and tripled his home run output from four in 1985 to 12. Ken Stock as a ball player was on the rise, and in the major leagues, the Astros would ride a hot second half to an NLS title, but ultimately lose in the playoffs to the New York Mets. In 86, Houston third baseman Denny Walling was 32 years old and had a career year. He set career highs in doubles and RBIs and had 13 home runs, nearly double the best number he would hit in any other year of his career. Walling had been an Astro since 1977, and it was obvious that he was not going to be part of the long-term plans, just a placeholder for Caminiti. The 1987 season began with Ken returning to AA Columbus. He underwent off-season surgery to fix tears in the patellar tendon in his left knee, already the second knee surgery Ken had had since graduating college. The Astros signed Dale Barra to a contract and assigned him to man third base for the team's AAA affiliate in Tucson, while Caminiti got more seasoning at a lower level. His manager was Tom Weidenbauer, who was in the first season of what would be a more than 20-year stint as an instructor in the Houston organization. That might have been experience that the 24-year-old Caminiti did not need, though, as from the start of the season, he tormented Southern League pitching. By mid-July, Caminiti was among the league leaders in all three Triple Crown categories. He had a 325 batting average with 15 home runs and 69 runs batted in. Again, Ken was an all-star and even made the league's postseason all-star team despite playing in only 95 games. San Jose State teammate Dana Corey noticed how Ken developed as a professional. Defensively, he was always unbelievable, like phenomenal. I think Ken developed more pop from both sides of the plate um, as he got older, just physically maturing more. And I would most likely think that Ken became, um, I think when you play in the big leagues, I would imagine you, you are forced to become more of a student of the game because you realize how guys are pitching you and what you need to do. And so I think he he probably was, in my mind, probably a, a guy uh, who had a better idea in the pros as to what they were going to try to do and what he needed to do to be better. And so I think, you know, it just shows 
that Ken was also he was he was also baseball smart. Like you don't last up there and have the success he did without being baseball smart. And that's probably a part of him that most people don't really stop to consider. But you know he was definitely a guy that people knew when he was in the lineup that he could he could hurt he could hurt guys you know hurt people. And so. They were very careful and how they dealt with Ken, and, and he, found, he still found success. So, you know, he had to be smart to do that. The Houston Astros were in second place in the NL West at the All-Star break in 1987, but had just lost three straight games to the Mets. Left fielder Jose Cruz was showing signs that at age 39, his career was almost over, and the Astros needed a jolt in their lineup to make a push to overtake first place Cincinnati, who they trailed by two and a half games. Cruz could no longer be an everyday player for Houston if they wanted to compete, and third base had been an area where the Astros were looking for an improvement over Walling. On top of those issues, center fielder Billy Hatcher went down with an injury. GM Dick Wagner decided the best way to solve the problem was to dip into his minor league system. To replace Hatcher in center field, Wagner recalled Gerald Young from AAA Tucson, and the decision was made that Denny Walling would begin playing left field. To fill the gap at third base, Wagner summoned Caminiti straight from double-A, a rare move which caught Cammy off guard. When they called me, I thought I was going to Tucson, Caminiti told reporters of his call-up. He may have figured that the veteran Barra was more likely to get called up, especially since his dad Yogi was in his third year as Astros bench coach. This might be the highest high I've had. I knew it could happen, I just didn't know it would be this fast. After only two and a half seasons in the minor leagues, Caminiti was headed to the show. When he arrived at the Astrodome and played in his first game on July 16th, he made a first impression that wouldn't be forgotten. On the next episode of Secondary League, the rise and fall of Ken Caminiti. Ken stars in his major league debut and introduces himself to the city of Houston in grand style. After the strong start, he struggles for several seasons to establish himself as a full-fledged major leaguer. And the seeds of discontent between owners and players worsen as a massive collusion scheme develops behind the scenes and the resulting fallout alters the baseball landscape for the rest of Caminiti's career. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating or a review and help spread the word by telling a friend. Follow us at Secondary Lead on Twitter and Instagram like our Facebook page, and check out show extras on YouTube. Music is courtesy of purpleplanet.com and the YouTube Audio Library. Our theme was written and performed by Jim Montgomery and Chris Cottrell. I'm your host, Joe Vasile. Thanks for listening.